Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings, space monkeys. You have returned for another episode of Cycling in Alignment. Today's podcast is with a repeat guest that is Ron Kochabar, doctor of physical therapy. I first spoke to Ron in the first season of my podcast way back in episode number 24, where we recorded a conversation entitled Roto-Tilling Belief Systems. And this is exactly what Ron is good at. He's good at digging up people's default mode network behaviors and patterns, their unconscious ways of living in the world and showing it to them and then inviting them to consider changing with the end result being that you critically examine how you walk through the world and start to do things better. And this is a really powerful message or teaching to bring to other people, in my opinion. And this is the message that Ron was disseminating in on his some of his social media, his Instagram channel specifically. He would do these long videos that were just straight riffs about this topic. Typically, this was sort of the underlying theme. I mean, the the individual videos, of course, had some variation, but this was the common theme that I picked up on and I found it to be quite powerful. So if you like today's conversation, I invite you to go back and listen to episode number 24. That's rototilling belief systems. But today we stay more on the physical therapy side of things. You might say we unpack some of the sports specific movement patterns that we see in sports. And specifically we talk about cycling and Ron shares a bit about his work with cyclists. He's worked with a lot of roadies and a lot of mountain bikers and he sees patterns in these athletes over time. So we begin to unpack that a bit. And I think that'll be really useful for my listeners to hear his perspective on this. He looks at some of the aspects of movement in a slightly different lens than I'm used to. And that was quite useful for me. I will also produce a piece of written content in conjunction with this podcast, and that will be dropped on my website, the fantastically named colbypierce.com. And it won't just be a regurgitation of exactly what's on the pod. I'm going to further develop my thoughts on our conversation. The idea being to mostly let Ron talk on the pod, hopefully. And for me to have an opportunity to kind of process what he said and learn from him and then share that with you, given my experience and my lens of interpretation. Hopefully that's a useful thing for the audience. My wise editor, Joel has suggested that this episode being over two hours in length might be best digested in two segments. So that's exactly what you're going to get. We're going to give you episode number one of this pod. And then next time you get to come back for the second half. Thus, the conversation with Ron Kochavar. I hope you enjoy our discussion. As always, please leave me all comments on the old Instagram, etc. Thanks for listening. Okay, where do you want to start? Uh, well, let's say hello and welcome our audience. Hello, audience. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Another episode of Cycling Alignment. Today, I'm here with Ron Kochabar. 
says he's a he's a return guest, a second yes. timer. Yeah, right. I got a uh, I got invited back. Yes, <laughs> you accepted my invitation. <laughs> exactly. <I'm> <laughs> it's good to be here. Thank you. Thanks for making time. Oh, absolutely. The last time we had this whole list of uh, stuff we were going to talk about, and then I think we managed to talk about almost none of that, and we just kind of got going on a conversation. And yep. Yeah. I just closed my computer. <laughs> and we just had a long we just conversation. <laughs> About what I don't even remember, but it was, uh, well, I think, I think there were some good things. In there. I think there were some nuggets yeah. in there. Yeah. 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 So, but today we're going to stay on task. We got this whole list of bullets, right? Okay. Um, but we, we didn't really talk about a title for this pod. Sometimes I have the conversation and then I go back and look at, and listen to it and think about what the title is sort of a result, a mm -hmm. side effect of our, yeah, of our conversation. Right. But some of the things we want to talk about today are our movement, the way humans move, right? Mm -hmm. what's and the, what's, where do you want to start that conversation? Well, let's define or talk about the concept of sports specific mood, movement patterns or sports specific movement, movement adaptations and begin with maybe just explaining the concept of what that's all about. And then we can break it down and maybe talk about how it applies to different sports. And then eventually I'd like to, talk about how it applies to cycling because I think cycling is yeah. a special case for that kind of discussion. Absolutely. I mean, cyclists, especially long-term cyclists, they present in the clinic with me with a lot of very characteristic, uh, impairments. Okay. Movement patterns, mm -hmm. uh, muscle imbalances, mm -hmm. things like that. But anything that we do over time, repetitively, um, our, our musculoskeletal system adapts to it. Mm -hmm. So that holds true. Yes. Not only to sports specific movement, but just life specific movement. Right. Um, I think the, one of the more common things that is, that I'll see in the clinic, uh, is athletes that have been doing their sport since before they became skeletally mature, mm -hmm. take overhead throwers, baseball players, especially pitchers. If, if kids start throwing at a young age, they've got these forces that are put on their skeletal system from a very young age. And you will see this very often in kids in their throwing arm is they will, their skeleton will mature in a way that they will have a whole lot of glenohumeral external rotation. Yep. So much so that you've actually got torsion into the humerus. Mm -hmm. And they develop that way skeletally because those forces have been put on them while they, while they were developing. Right. Pre before puberty. Yeah. Before puberty. Yep. Before, before wow. growth, growth plates close. Yep. So it can be a little bit deceiving to see them then come into the clinic as, you know, teenagers, high school players, college players, mm -hmm. and you start looking at their mechanics passively. And I look at their shoulder and like, my God, you've got 130 degrees of external rotation passively. Mm -hmm. Well, but if you take films, you take x-rays, then you can see the torsion in their, in their bones. You can see the way that, hmm. that 
the glenohumeral joint adapted to that movement that they were doing mm-hmm. long before they became skeletally mature. So that is their normal. Right. One, one of the things that you know, as as, a, as that PT start to look at as what is sort of what is normal, what is abnormal, or what is uh, what is normal and what is aberrant. Mm-hmm. And if you look and take the case of a of an overhead thrower, if somebody has got an excessive amount of external rotation, typically they're going to have some very limited internal rotation mm-hmm. in their shoulder. And if we don't know somebody's history, that may automatically become something that a PT starts to zero in on. Well, we need to fix this. We need to get more internal rotation into this because a normal amount of ro- internal rotation is say 65 degrees. Well, if you've got a thrower that's been throwing since they were six years old and skeletally they've only got 40 degrees of internal rotation, mm-hmm. you're not going to change that by getting in and mobilizing that joint. As a matter of fact, you're going to probably end up doing probably causing, yeah, you're going to probably cause a problem. Yeah. Trying to get movement <clears throat> into a, into a joint that, is now developed that way. Right. And you see that in, you see that in hockey players and their hips, mm-hmm. um, very often in hockey players yeah. in, in their hips. Yeah. And, and it, 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 if we do something long enough, our musculoskeletal system will adapt to it. Right. Even our, just our skeletal system, our, it's a dynamic system. Yeah, it's it res- always responding it, to stress. Yes, it's right. always responding to stress. We don't think of it that way. I think I, I imagine most people think of bones as sort of like immovable objects that are bones. And they don't yeah. really change, but they're always growing and responding to stress. Yes. Right? Yep. Yeah. And this is what a dowager's hump is. This is what. Yeah. Right. This is when people's feet get deformed and you get Absolutely. bunions and, and things yeah. like that. And it grow, the bunion actually, the knuckle grows and becomes this calcified ossified yes. eventually yeah you end up with all the sextatosis that you can yep. actually see on yep. on x-rays mm-hmm. and it's just a result of prolonged stress mm-hmm. this piezoelectric, piezoelectric charge right yeah. yep yeah we described that it's great i'm glad you brought that term up that's something i've looked a bit into i mean we, it's essentially it's our 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 bony skeleton system responding to pressure mm-hmm. when you put pressure on two bones meet and with enough pressure over enough amount of time mm-hmm. if it starts to wear through the cartilage where you've actually got bones in very close proximity to each other the pressure will cause osteoclastic a- activity in the bones which is basically it'll make more bone Wait, bone growing yes yeah which is what arthritis is uh-huh I mean, and you can see it in, you can see it in progression on, on plane films, on x-rays. Mm-hmm. The beginnings of it are when you start to see what are called sclerotic changes on as, and when two, say two long bones come together in a joint, in an x-ray, sclerot, the beginnings of sclerotic changes are these very bright white um, lucencies that, that you can see very clearly. Mm-hmm on on plane films and that's the new bone being laid down yeah well it's a it's a result of it's a result of pressure you can 
definitely look at that and say, okay, there's, there's a lot of pressure going into that joint. Mm-hmm. Sclerotic changes are the beginnings of what could potentially become, you know, more advanced osteoarthritis. Mm-hmm. They're normal. It's normal that it happens. Um, but it can be a, it can be very problematic if it starts, if those things start to happen in joint angles and in joint planes, that it alters the, the kinematics right. of, what, of the what joint. What are trying to do? Yeah. yeah. And you do it long enough and yeah. eventually now you've got a joint that moves in a certain way and that just becomes the new normal for it. Yeah. So, okay, let's, maybe we can bring this into a common example I'm thinking of. I worked with a client yesterday actually who had hallux rigidus on his left foot. Mm-hmm. So in case, so the audience understands that's basically a limited range of motion in your big toe, your first your first ray, your great toe, right? right? And that's really problematic. It may seem like a small thing, but you know, remember that most days of our lives we walk, we walk quite a bit. When you walk, you know, very broadly speaking, there's like a heel strike and then a midfoot and then a push off phase. And when you push off that toe, all your toes, but in particular the, the big toe has to dorsiflex, which means mm-hmm. stick up like the dorsal fin of a shark, right? Mm-hmm. So up towards the shin. And that allows you to push off and accelerate off the ground. And and the quicker you go, of course, then you're jogging and running. And then that's even more important to have that dorsiflexion of the toe. But if that toe is fixed, if the joint is calcified or starting to become ossified, right? Mm-hmm. Because of that piezoelectric charge, then it locks up. And then you, when you go to push, it's more like you're wearing, well, a cycling shoe, a rigid cycling shoe, instead of a shoe that allows your foot to flex. And the right. reason why cycle, there's a reason why cyclists kind of run and walk like ducks in their shoes, because the foot can't do what it would do if you were just walking right. barefoot. Right. And so, so then what happens when someone walks and they normally, we would expect their foot, their toes to dorsiflex on the last part of the gait, but it can't happen. There has to be a compensation. Right. Right. So either the ankle has to move more to make up where the toe couldn't move or it goes up the chain. Right. Right. And then you, then you get hip pain or back pain when you go for a walk because your foot isn't working properly. That- yeah, no, absolutely. You normal in from mid stance to pre-swing, which yep. is very last phase of gait. Pre-swing is where you need all that mobility in your first through your first ray, through that first meta uh, MTP joint. Yep. Right. And normal, quote unquote normal, is that you would have 60 to 70 degrees right. of extension. Mm-hmm or dorsiflexion, dorsiflexion in that, in your great toe for normal gait. Yep. Without that, then you're going to, people are going to keep walking, mm-hmm. right? And if they keep up the same stride length, then that movement, if it, if it's not coming from your, from your first MTP joint, yeah, it has to come from somewhere else. Cause the next place, the yeah. next place it's going to come from is from your midfoot. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Right. The next place after that yep. is it's going to transfer forces up into the distal tibia. Yeah. So into the talocrural joint yeah. into your ankle. Yeah. Well, the longer that that happens and the stiffer that the stiffer that things get. Um, yes, absolutely. Kinematically, it'll go, it'll go up the chain. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can, you can develop headaches mm-hmm. right. from having four poor foot mechanics on, especially if it's unilateral, 
Mm -hmm. If you've just got a problem on, on one side. Right. And then, if that yeah. happens over time, yeah. then you start to see these, these adaptive, adaptive muscle shortening, mm -hmm. muscle lengthening, muscle facilitation, muscle inhibition mm -hmm. in the antagonist muscles. And the longer any situation goes on, uh, the more chronic it gets. The more embedded it gets, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So, mm -hmm. yes, these, you know, there are, this can be a sports specific mm. movement adaptation, or it can simply be a life specific movement adaptation. Like someone yeah. who um, works as a grocery, uh, grocery packer, mm -hmm. right? Or a checkout person, because yeah. they're always moving, they're always rotating the torso. From one side to the other, only on, on. I didn't say that right. They're they're standing with a certain orientation relative to their their right. equipment, and so they're rotating the torso more in one direction than the other. We'll say right. right. So most musculoskeletal problems develop because of either repetitive movements or prolonged postures. Mm. Yeah, because yeah. fascia and bone respond to load, which primarily right. is duration it could also be intensity though right but it can then, be then it's more broken bone situation right, right. Yeah. yeah so the in prolonged repetitive movements and prolonged postures will tend to lead to this more micro trauma mm -hmm. obviously any kind of a macro trauma where you've got an excessive tensile force and an excessive shear force into a structure yep. an excessive rotational force into a structure you're going to disrupt disrupt the structure right right, right. but I think more commonly, what certainly what I see in the clinic are just their learned movement patterns mm -hmm. from repetitive movements or from prolonged postures that have now started to create aberrant forces on joints, the ligamentous structures that support those joints. And now they're starting to, now they're starting to actually create dysfunction. Mm -hmm. or more commonly uh, a pain response. Mm -hmm. So it's not the, it's not the tension that creates the pain. The pain response is a whole different, is a different topic, mm -hmm. but anything that is aberrant or out of the ordinary, there's going to be some signals that get sent up to our brain that says, Hey, something's out of balance. We need to, we need to change, we need to change uh, either some, we need to change a posture or we need to change a movement mm -hmm. so that we can bring the system back into balance. But when it happens over time, it happens so incrementally <clears throat> that a lot of times those signals, those sort of danger messages, they, they get lost in the mix mm -hmm. because, because they're so small and so subtle. Or they get drowned out by tons of, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or other tactics to avoid oh, yeah. feeling, right? Because mm -hmm. I mean, I've talked about this in my other, some of my other episodes, but I kind of have a bone to pick with Western medicine to beat up on it for a minute to put air quotes around it. But a lot of the tactics are about making people not feel and alleviating comfort. And for me, there's, that's, that comes back to sort of a violation of what I'll say is natural law or living in accordance with nature. Like your body is telling you something it's, it's communicating with you. 
-hmm. You have a swollen knee because you rode your bike too much or because you bonked it on a coffee table or lifted mm -hmm. too many weights. That, that doesn't mean that you turn down the signal that, well, like, what's the smart play here? Are we going to take a bunch of drugs and treat the symptom so that I can go on doing my things that I have to do? Mm -hmm. Or do I take a moment to listen to what my body's saying to me and interpret the signal? And the signal is rest. Your knee's in pain. Right. You need to do less, not yeah. bury and do more, right? So I'm just highlighting that sometimes I think those signals get turned yeah. off by our choices, culturally, perhaps, yeah. or I think, it is, I think it's more cultural, really, than anything else. Mm. Um, we're never really taught to pay attention to our bodies. Mm. We're, we're taught a formula, mm -hmm. and we're taught rules, and then we are taught to follow that formula, follow that recipe, follow those rules, mm -hmm. and really never sway from it until the next formula comes along. Yeah. And we, we lose a lot because I inherently we all have this ability to hear our body speaking to us, mm -hmm. sending us some sort of message. And at that point, we've got a choice. We can either listen to it or we can pay attention to, you know, who, whoever taught us the lessons that we learned. Mm -hmm. If it was our parents, if it was our teachers, if it was culture, really just, you know, if we were just socialized mm -hmm. into that. Um, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Where we really get lost is that it's not very often that we are taught to actually listen mm -hmm. and pay attention to, and then act on our own intuition when it comes to those things. My knee hurts. I'm going to hold off on something, mm -hmm. right? Or my knee is hot and red and swollen is now the right time to try to push through something? No, it's not. Mm -hmm. you know, your body is giving you, a, giving you a message. If your knee just hurts and it's not red and hot and swollen, it just hurts because you moved in such a way that, that, that your joint wasn't supposed to move, then it might be giving us a different message. Hey, um, maybe we should try to move in a different way. But we're not, but we're not really taught to do that. That's very sort of, uh, it's very witchy, <laughs> you know, to, yeah. to tune into ourselves, mm -hmm. go inside and listen mm. and then act on whatever guidance it is that, that our body gives us, mm. you know, mm. I mean, how that, that it's a very audacious thing to do, to be like, you know what, I'm not going to do this because my my body is telling me it's not what I, what I need. Yeah. And that flies in the face of, you know, a medical doctor who says, no, this is what you need to do. Or, you know, a physical therapist who says, no, this is the way this is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Or a dietitian or yeah, a, or, exactly. Yeah. And, hmm. but that, you know, intuition is a, I mean, that's a, that's a slippery slope into intuition because it's very easy to misinterpret what our body is actually saying versus what our mind 
is saying or maybe ego or ego which right? i would which i would just which i would lump in the in the category of mind yep yep you know mm-hmm. and you know my one of my <clears throat> one of my teachers used to always say because he'd get us into these when i was in i was doing a yoga teacher training with him mm-hmm. he'd put us into these asanas and then we'd hold them and hold it for a long time. And we'd get a couple, two, three minutes into things and people are sweating, collapsing, things like that. And then he would just calmly say, I want you to listen. If it's your body telling you that you need to get out of this position, then I want you to listen to it and I want you to get out of this position. Mm. But if it's your mind telling you that you need to get out of this position, interesting. then I want you to sit with it a little bit longer. Yep. And if we're willing to at least recognize that just because we feel it doesn't necessarily mean it's a fact. Mm-hmm. If we're willing to pull that apart a little bit more and say, oh, okay, this is what I feel. What is that? Is this, is this truth or is this me just manifesting a whole bunch of fear right. and taking my own experience and putting that in the forefront mm-hmm. and deciding what's best just because that's what I've always done. Mm-hmm. It was a great, it was a great little experiment. It was the guy that always used to say, you know, you, you want to run your own tests in the laboratory of your own experience mm-hmm. because you're not going to know what's right for yourself until you actually do it. Yep. That's, that's super interesting. Um, I actually started writing a blog for my next pod that I wanted to do with it solo. And I touch on a lot of those same concepts about crafting intuition and looking inside for the ultimate discernment or decision-making versus sourcing knowledge externally. Mm -hmm. And the difference between knowledge and understanding, understanding the way I am speaking about it. I don't know if this is like strictly the correct definition or whatever, but how I talk about it is, that understanding is applying knowledge, which could be book knowledge, which is like math facts or anatomy facts about origin and insertions of muscles or whatever about that type of knowledge, but then bringing it into your own life and having an understanding of it is when you experience it, right? Mm-hmm. You gotta have some knowledge. You yeah. can't be like, I don't know that I have a stomach or whatever, right? Right. But, but then when your stomach hurts, you can have the experience of stomach hurt and then apply your knowledge yeah. and then have an understanding of that and then you craft an intuition and that's always an end of one yeah because it always is an end of one right there's mm-hmm. no other way to do it but constantly i think culturally also we're we're taught as you were saying uh, with the example of the doctor mm-hmm. we're taught to look externally for knowledge to find every all the sense of power is put outside the self to ask your help you it's almost learned helplessness yeah. because it's like i don't know how to solve this problem i have this health problem and i don't know why i have it i have no idea at all, which is interesting because any good therapist or doctor, the first thing we do is a, at when we're trying to dissect, dissect a problem, but I'll, I'll say we and put me in the category of therapists and doctors for the moment, just for funsies. But when we're trying to figure out what's up with a client is we have to find out context. Everything's about context, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have a stomach ache and you can't, you can't imagine why, well, 
use your intuition. Look internally. What do you have? What knowledge do you have? What, what have you, what did you eat today? What did you eat yesterday? What have you eaten for the last five years of your life? Mm -hmm. Right. What prescription right. drugs are you taking? Look at all the right. things that it could impact the stomach and begin to craft that intuition. But we're taught culturally to go to the search engine for all our problems. Right. God forbid. Don't do that. Don't, <laughs> don't start Google, no. Googling yourself. Don't start Googling. But it is, it's learned dependence. It's learned dependence on that yeah. exterior knowledge mm -hmm. from sources of um, authority, right? Is how we yeah, perceive in, them. In quotes. Right, in right, quotes. right. Yeah. <laughs> the white lab coat of the doctor means he knows everything or she knows everything. And I surrender. And they do know everything. They're specialists in their field, but that doesn't mean that they have all the tools that are needed to help any given person at any given moment. Yeah, right? Yes, absolutely. And that learned, that learned helplessness, like you said, or, or learned dependence is it, it speaks to never being taught to do exactly what you said, which is to start to investigate mm -hmm. our self with a big S, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. to just stop in a moment to breathe and then to begin to sort of recapitulate, okay, what were the steps that led up to this moment? And we're not, we're not even encouraged really to do that. Mm. We are very much in, in, encouraged to seek expert guidance, expert opinion from outside of ourselves, and yeah. then encouraged to follow that guidance, even when that guidance hits a hard, hard wall yes. within ourselves. Yeah. There's like, that seems, mm -hmm. that just does not seem like what I should be doing. This is, um, and then we are encouraged yeah. to be like, you know, they're the expert. They're the expert. They, they know. know, right? And yeah, two things that come to mind there. One, I, I'm going to beat up on vegans for a minute, but this is, this is the vegan dogma, right? Like it's good for the environment. It's good for me. I don't want to see animals get slaughtered. I'm going to make a choice because I'm a conscious human. Whatever the arguments are, there are lots of, of the core vegan right. veganism arguments, right? Mm -hmm. And. And I'm not saying no one should be vegan just to be clear, like that's your path, that's your path. I don't, I'm not here to tell you how to eat, nor am I here to make you feel bad about your dietary choices. Eat what you're going to eat, be on your adventure. Just dogmatic thought in any application, I would argue is a foolish choice. So we could say, you know, we get down that road of, well, I've consulted the dogma, the expert of veganism, and this is the highest standard of health. I think at the moment, this is what my belief system has led me to be. And then people go all in on veganism and maybe they feel amazing for two years because before that they came from the standard American diet, which was complete shit. So yeah, you eat Taco Bell and gas station food and you go to vegan, you're going to feel great for a period of time. And maybe yeah. some people will feel great forever. But in my experience, from what I've learned, most people will start to feel like crap after a period of time. But then, then usually comes the like wrestling six, match. Usually like six weeks. That's, that's <laughs> six about. weeks. Really? You think that soon? Yeah, I've, I mean, I've, I've read a lot of stories and heard a lot of like internet chatter about people who are like two, three years on vegan diet. And then they start to notice like, Hmm, my skin isn't great. I can't, my joints are achy. I feel a little bit inflamed. I can't keep weight on, you know, all the classic problems. And then they go, if they're, a, if they're a left brained vegan, they'll go down the science route and they'll be like, what do I do? Oh, I'm going to start taking essential amino acids. I'm going to take B vitamins and I'm going to 
supplement with all these things and we eat more beans and rice or whatever. Right. Or everything goes sideways and then they decide to go yeah. paleo. Right. Which is the next, <laughs> what is, what, which is the next way of taking your internal power of us, of intuiting what foods are right for you Correct. and scrapping all that and ignoring it and placing it externally into the experts. Right. And just shifting one expert for another. Well, this one worked for a while, but then I don't know what went wrong. It, I don't know the vegan didn't work or the carnival didn't work. It's certain any diet in this discussion, right? Keto didn't work. Okay. What? Well, oh, now, oh, now it's whole 30 or now it's a Mediterranean diet. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting because, um, just remembered this when I was in seventh grade, let's see, that would have been <laughs> 77, something like that. Um, I was in seventh grade and in my health class, we were given a project to write a paper. Mm -hmm. And the whole purpose was of this was that we had to learn how to do research in the library, use resources that were available. Mm -hmm. The Dewey this, Decimal System. This is way back in the Dewey Decimal System. Time, right? <laughs> so they wanted us to come up with a question that we then had to gather research on. And my question was, why do we crave certain foods? Does, when we crave a food, is there something in that food that our body needs? Right. And that was my, that was my question. As, needs. A, as a seventh grader. So needs is like in nutritional it, sense. In a like nutritional sense. Yeah. Oh, okay. What what does my body need? What okay. trace elements? What yeah. you know, what macronutrients? Like what it, like why do we crave? Like I didn't I didn't under, I it was interesting to me. And there was no Google, there was no computers, there was nothing. And I did utilize the librarian uh -huh. to do a lot of my research. I did not do all of the research on my own because I also was like, there are people who they're, this is their job. They love doing this. So I'm going to write this paper. I just need the information given mm -hmm. to me. And I had no clue how to even start looking that stuff up mm -hmm. and come to find out that when I was actually shocked that there was even in the seventies, there was good scientific empirical research out there that showed that when your body craves certain foods, that there are nutrients, minerals usually, mm. that are in foods, specific foods, and that there is a correlation there. It was never a causation, but it was, but they were always correlated. Okay. Why, why does a body crave chocolate? Well, there's high levels of magnesium mm -hmm. in chocolate. I was like, Jesus. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And for the life of me, I can't remember all the other examples that, but I was like, I was like, wow, what a lesson to get from my own investigation. Yeah. Because I had a teacher that said, I want you to ask a question and then investigate it. There's that, that just doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't happen. happen very often. It's, and it doesn't, it's not the kind of thing that usually happens in, in households with parents. Mm -hmm. You know, I was very conscious of that with my own daughter, but there were dozens of times where I caught myself just being a parent 
and saying, this is what you do. Mm. This is right. This is wrong. And if those words were coming out of my mouth, it was like, I could, it was something would catch them and be like, Jesus, yeah. I'm doing the, I'm doing the same thing that I said I shouldn't be doing. And then I would pull that stuff back. Mm-hmm. And then I would have to rework that conversation with my daughter mm-hmm. and essentially do what that teacher says. was like, all right, I want you to investigate this. Yep. And then we're going to have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you found. Because like you were saying, if there is not, if we do not have an experience attached to our knowledge, then that knowledge is worthless and very often detrimental. It's like knowing enough Kung Fu to get your ass kicked. <laughs> yeah. Right. Go start a fight. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I read a book and now I'm all spiritual. Right. Um, I read a book and. Now I'm all kung fu. And now I'm all kung fu. You know. Um, yeah. I don't even know how we started on this. Well, Co- yeah, we did it. We wandered. Well, these are patterns, right? So we start. Yes. We started with with adaptations, yep. right? But those things start from a very from a very young age. But even after, like, we become skeletally mature, mm-hmm. our skeleton's not fixed. It will respond to repetitive strain. Mm-hmm. And I know that at some point you want to turn this towards cycling, but mm-hmm. when cyclists come into the, come into the clinic, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. It's, well, especially depending upon this kind of cycling that they do. So you that's know, road racers yeah. look a little bit different than mountain bikers, but they've all got, they all get very, very similar mm-hmm. uh, impairments. Let's unpack them. Tell, tell me what's on your list. What do you see when you see a roadie come through your door? First of all, well, Let's unpack it if you if you can, if you are willing, please, mm-hmm. to do it in a way of what are the most common injuries you see and common problems mm-hmm. that are reported, but then what do you see on the other side as far as your observations, your muscle things like muscle tension, muscle length tension relationships? Uh, I would say I think probably the most common is especially people that are on there that are either racing or they've got road bikes where they're really bent over like quite a bit a lot of hip flexion yeah um yeah. i think the most common thing is a lot of excessive thoracic kyphosis yep okay. the most common pain complaints that people have are neck pain and radicular pain okay. hands going numb yep. numbness tingling pain in in the extremities mm-hmm. That's usually the first thing to show up. And then neck pain soon, soon after that. You said pain in extremities, so so feet and hands. Or uh, upper extremities. Most, upper, oh, okay. upper extremities. Okay. Yeah. Right. The in the lower extremities, yeah, it's there's there's usually if people have been cycling for a long time and not really conscious of undoing what they have done. Mm-hmm on the bike for a long extended period of time. Yeah. Then yes, you've got things like hip flexion contractures, Mm -hmm. um, discogenic issues in the lumbar spine because they're in so much flexion. Mm -hmm. A lot of ridiculous symptoms can be pain, numbness, tingling, muscle weakness. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of uh, perineal stuff, a lot of pudendal stuff that that can happen. if, if they've got really poor seats, but yeah. in even some of the, 
even some of the newer ergon, ergodynamic seats, you spend long enough in those things. Yeah. And you're going to develop some, you know, you can start to develop you some, can. some pelvic pain. You can. I've got one brand in particular that I think is heads and tails above all the others and has yeah. significant improvements. And I have very, very good success with most of my clients on it. Yeah. Ultimately, it's always an M one. Same thing. You got to put them on and have them try it. Yeah. And and um, experience it yep. to develop that understanding. But the knowledge comes from the idea that this saddle has different features than other ones. So um, it's well, just briefly, it's it's very curved. So it's got a big cutout. Mm -hmm. So it's based on the perineum. So you're supporting yourself on the ischium, not not mm -hmm. the soft tissue. Right. But it's also a lot of people don't really recognize. I don't think they right now in the cycling industry, there's always talk about sit bones. What, how wide are your sits bones, yeah. either sit bones or sits bones, depending on who you ask. And so what we're measuring is the width, the distance between the ischial tuberosities. But the reality is most cyclists don't sit on their ischial tuberosities. They might have ischial tuberosity contact, but they're between the ischial tuberosities and the ischial pubic rami. Yep. Right. And so how I, how I describe it to my clients is that the ischium are like, they're kind of like rocking chair feet. They're curved and they're a little wider in the back. And they're a little narrower in the front. Mm -hmm. When you put a rocking chair on a hard surface, a hardwood floor, mm -hmm. it rocks. Right. But when you curve the floor up to meet the chair, then you get a bigger distribution of pressure and a bigger area of contact. Right. So that's the concept of the saddle. It's got a big wide, it's like the inverse of a rocking chair kind of is the idea. Right. They're called, it's SMP for the people who don't know. Most people know that I, that's my thing. And I'm, it's not to say that everyone should be on that saddle, but I found it. In, it's the closest thing I've ever had to for most people to come in and I say, what, what's the ideal here? We want the saddle to disappear under you, mm -hmm. even on long rides. Yep. We don't want chafing. We don't want sores. We don't want bruising. We don't want numbness. We don't want tingling right. all those things. Like we have the technology for most people. Mm -hmm. I'll say women are ice skating up a little uphill, a little more than men on this. It's, yeah. it's definitely easier to find a men's saddle that's uh, disappears than it is yeah. a woman. It's possible with women. Right. Um, and the market's evolving. Mm -hmm. And back, bike saddles have come so far in the last even 10 years, even five years. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's. And, and, and I think that the, the cyclists that I see in the clinic, mm -hmm. they are not, they're usually not the people that are hip to a lot of that information. Yeah. Those are the people that I will send to people like you. And when I was living in Los Angeles, we had one of our sports docs who, uh, who did bike fits mm -hmm. and I would send a number of patients to him. He even brought his bike into the clinic and, or his setup into the clinic and had separate appointments done on his clinic time where patients could bring their, bring their bikes in. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'm going to send, I'm going to send patients to, to the right people for those kind of things. But it's not usually the folks that are hip to a lot of this that you end up seeing coming yeah. into a clinic. Yeah. They come into a clinic because they weren't hip to a lot of this information. Then they get it. Maybe. And hopefully, yeah. I think if, I think the goal of any good provider, any good clinician is that ultimately they make their clients or their patients self-empowered so that they can take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. Give them, give them, give them some information. And then essentially, like you said, well, the only way we're going to know is if we actually put you on that saddle and then see what happens. So teach they have to run an experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. They have to run an experience. Mm -hmm. 
an experiment in the laboratory of their own experience. Yeah. They have to do an N of one. Yep. Yeah. And that takes, that takes a lot of extra effort mm-hmm. on the part of a patient or on the part of a client. And then it really comes down to, you know, personalities. Some people are going to do it and some people aren't. And when I have, when I have uh, cyclists come in, I had a lot of this when I was living in, in LA, our clinic, we saw a lot of uh, JPL scientists, a lot of literal rocket scientists. And a lot of these guys are hardcore bikers. Hmm. They bike to and from work. They're up in the mountains uh, every, every weekend. Mm-hmm. And that is their only form of exercise, right? Yep. These, are the, these are the same guys that back in the 80s played racquetball. <laughs> right right it's like what do you do it's what play you do. racquetball yeah I'm like but if we might need to switch the exercise program up a little because it's not working <laughs> right right and so these guys would come in into the clinic literally in the shape of their bike yes and if you've got a fixed thoracic spine but then in order to see where you're going you have to lift yourself into that much excessive cervical extension something is going to give and it's usually the mid cervical spine mm-hmm. which is why you get ridiculous symptoms into the into the arms mm-hmm. and into the hands and to try to convince some of these guys yeah that they might have to do something other than get on their bike to help these symptoms go away i mean that that was a crapshoot yeah you know it's the it's kind of 50, 50, you know, well, and, I can tell you what to do and you can even, you know, so we would do it in the clinic. Right. And any good therapist is going to, is going to take an assessment, do some sort of intervention and then do a reassessment. Right. Right. Because if See you've got, if you, if you've got symptoms that are mechanical in nature and then you change the mechanics well, it follows that you should have some sort of a change in your reassessment if it's mechanical, right? And so we do that all the time. You know, take these guys and, and start trying to bias them out of some of this excessive uh, cervical kyphosis. See if you could, if they're young enough, you could actually get in there and, and start mobilizing the, the thoracic spine. Uh-huh. Do a few things to stabilize these hypermobile segments in the cervical spine. Yep. And then reassess a movement or a posture that they that was really their chief complaint. Mm. And you can change that stuff like almost immediately. And usually they would recognize they'd be like, wow, that feels a whole lot better. That's amazing. But the rest, the the uh, the homework then was left to their own responsibility. Well, if you want to keep getting this change, and if you want to make a change in this now long-term problem that you're starting to have, you're going to have to start doing, you have to start undoing all of these adaptive forces that you've been putting onto your body. Yeah. Because your body has now, has now adapted to a position that is starting, starting to compromise some tissues. Mm -hmm. Right. It's right. not about what's normal. It's not about what is, um, 
what the norms are for a way a joint moves or how a muscle is supposed to move or how agonists and antagonists are supposed to, you know, are, are supposed to work uh, in conjunction with each other. It's not about any of that. It's, this is what you're doing. It's putting a lot of excessive force on structures that weren't built to have that repetitive excessive force on it. And now the structures are starting to respond to that. So if you want to undo it and keep doing what you're doing, I'm not, I rare, I don't think I've ever told anybody to stop mm -hmm. doing what they're doing. But if you want to keep doing what you're doing, then you're going to have to start doing some maintenance. Yeah. Right. It's like brushing your teeth. Yeah. It's like changing the oil in your car. Ah, yeah. This is a good concept. We could, uh, I attended a, a men's weekend uh, several months ago, and one of the concepts that I left with was the idea that you're always, there's only three activities you can be doing in life, really. You could be creating, you can be destroying, or you can be maintaining, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So when we're creating, we're building new things, or maybe we're dividing things, or we're writing books, or we're making art, or we're whatever, mm -hmm. having conversation and recording it on a podcast. Mm -hmm. But then we're destroying, we're, we're tearing down some of our old stuff, perhaps we're getting rid of things or we're maintaining that's the maintaining is the part that is frequently i think in today's society the part that frustrates us most because it's like i wanted to go do all these things by 10 o'clock on my saturday afternoon but i had to sweep the floors and do the dishes and you know clean up this mm -hmm. pile of boxes and and do my laundry and that's maintaining mm -hmm. we have to maintain just to stay where we are otherwise things degenerate because entropy always wins so just as you said you instigate change in a client you educate them about, and I'll unpack this just briefly for the audience to make sure everybody's on the same page. When you're talking about cervical extension, really what we're saying is when someone's in a really low arrow road position, which means their torso's at 45 degrees or lower, then in order to see up the road, if they do what I refer to as verticalization of the face, their neck is really cranked up at this kind of pretty, pretty, um, abrupt angle, right? And when you think about the spine from tip to tail, tip of the head, all the way down to your sacrum, there's a big kink in the neck. That's fundamentally what it is. And, and vertebra don't like to be kinked. <laughs> it's not a good situation, generally speaking, which is not to say you should never put your spine in flexion or extension or kink it. You should move, that's part of exercise and movement. Mm -hmm. But long-term, when you're riding a bike and your, your face is vertical, but your torso is closer to horizontal, mm -hmm. you got a kink in the hose. Right? right. And that's going to cause all kinds of problems, all the ones you just talked about. So how do we do? Well, there's, you can work on the muscles of the neck. You can, like you said, you can work on mobilizing the thoracic spine and um, working maybe a little more flexion in the cervical spine. You can strengthen the muscles to support the neck more effectively. But if the rider, if the cyclist, the athlete keeps riding their bike for 18 hours a week mm -hmm. in that same position, they're sort of going to keep spinning up the same problem. Now they might have some tools that you've given them to offset that mm -hmm. movement pattern, but also we could have a conversation about possibly uh, making their position slightly less aggressive. So the torso isn't as low or mm -hmm. adjusting their posture on the bike. This is like a no fly zone in a lot of bike fitters. They, mm -hmm. it's really interesting. They put the rider on the bike and if they're sitting there with a, you know, pretty much vertical sacrum and this extreme rainbow shaped flexed spine, mm -hmm. especially old school fitters. A lot of them would just say, well, that's the way the rider sits on the bike. It's like, wait a minute. 
why does that have to be the case? Like mom told us to stand up straight all the time in high school. Why can't a bike fitter ask someone to sit with more axial extension, mm-hmm. a little more forward rotation of the sacrum of the pelvis? Yeah. Like, is this a thing? So I, I started talking about this stuff years ago and mm-hmm. there are lots of other fitters who do, but there, I think there are some who don't. So we could have a conversation about the rider instead of being completely vertical with the orientation of their face, Sometimes when they're riding, especially on roads that are less busy and they predictable and they know where they're going, they can drop the head slightly and roll the eyes up, mm-hmm. which won't eliminate cervical extension, but it would maybe make it less extreme. Right? Yeah. Again, if, if you've got a mechanical problem, then there, there's always some sort of mechanical adjustments that can happen. Right. If I wanted to get somebody into a little bit more of an anterior pelvic tilt, yep. the easiest way to do that is if they're on a bike, the easiest way to do that is to angle the seat down a little bit. A little bit. You know? Yeah. Drop it a few degrees. Mm-hmm. Immediately, they're going to drop into a little bit more of a neutral spine into their, into their lumbar spine. Right. Right. And if you then maybe brought brought the brought the handlebars up mm-hmm. uh you know an bit. inch a little bit yep i don't know how much because i don't do that but if you brought the handlebars up now you've got a spine that is more biased towards its sort of anatomical neutral yeah ultimately what that does like you said from tip to tip to top mm-hmm. is it's going to pull some of that excessive extension out of where they're hinging in their cervical spine. Right. And very like small changes like that can have profound effects over time. Mm-hmm. The really the the good thing about maintenance, maintenance because it's boring, right? I mean, it, yeah, almost nobody wants to nobody do wants maintenance. To, nobody right? wants to clean their floors or right, right. exactly. <laughs> but the good thing about maintenance is that you don't have to do as much maintenance it's not a 50 50 trade-off right you spend yeah you spend 18 hours a week on your bike no, I mean 18 you, hours you, of- you maybe need 30 minutes mm-hmm. of maintenance work to undo a lot of the to turn on muscles that have become inhibited or elongated mm-hmm. because of positions prolonged positions or to open up musculature that has now just become hypertonic Mm-hmm. Because it's been in a shortened, flexed uh, position for so long. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't take very long. But again, it, it's hard to get people to brush their teeth for two minutes. <laughs> right? Right. So to come back at somebody that really is, is sort of stalwartly opposed to changing their routine. Yeah. To come back to them with, with a fix that takes 15 minutes mm. that can, that can be a bit of an uphill battle. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you know, clients or patients, they run the gamut. I mean, they're people, right? Yeah. Some people are going to embrace it. They're going to be, my God, thank you so much for this. I'll take it from here. Mm-hmm. And they do. And then some people, they're going to come back in and they're going to say, nothing's changed. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll ask them, did you do the things I asked you to do? Not no. Really. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, and, and it's everything yeah. in between. Yeah. 
So all we can really do is provide some knowledge to bring this kind of back full circle is provide some knowledge. But until somebody has had an experience of taking that knowledge and then implementing it or applying it and then getting a result in their own personal body, well, then that knowledge means nothing. It, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's like reading a book yeah. and being able to, you know, spout off a couple of things that you memorized. It doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have any weight. Mm-hmm. But if you've had an experience with it, then that, that opens up a whole, a whole other environment. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It is interesting what you're saying. I assume that when most people walk through the door of your clinic, they're, they're there for a reason. They're not going to just go because they want to optimize their performance. They're there because something hurts or is tingly or doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but there's the old relationship between the size of the crisis or how crisis precipitates change basically. But it's interesting to hear you say like still 50, 50, even people walk through your door and have something that hurts a lot and they ask you for the help and then you offer them that help and they see the evidence that what you're doing is working, mm-hmm. but then they're still having trouble executing a maintenance program beyond that to keep it from coming back. I mean, how often do you see people a year later where they've gone? Yeah, I, back where I was that happens I think any any PT yeah. can provide multiple stories yeah. of that happening yeah people will come back in the door I've got the same problem mm-hmm. did you keep doing the things that I gave you to do no no I don't even remember them right yep I've heard that or the pain went away so I stopped doing yes you know, I stopped doing the things that helped relieve the pain yeah and to which, you know, an immediate follow-up question is why? Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, <it's>, <laughs> why? Mm-hmm. But we're all guilty of that mm-hmm. in some aspect of our lives, you know? Yeah. There's an economy of effort there, right? Of, of course. Because we're always calculating our energy we put into any given thing. We're looking for, mm-hmm. and there's a point when you put, you're doing something, you're like, why am I doing this? I don't need this anymore. Yeah. Let it go. Replace it yeah. with something else. We're, yeah. we're constantly running these unconscious risk benefit analysis yeah. or cost benefit analysis. Yeah. It's like, do I really need to sweep my floor? Well, there's nobody coming over today. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing something else. Do I really need to brush my teeth? I don't have a date tonight. Right. You know, it's like it, we're, yeah. we're, we do, we do this unconsciously with everything in life. And we adapt. We adapt our musculoskeletal patterns. We adapt our coping strategies. We adapt our neurological, our our neurological firing patterns for everything that we do to the point where most of what we do during the day, grossly, roughly 96% of what we do during the day, we do unconsciously. It, It just happens. You know, our keys come out, they go in a certain place, our phones come out. Yeah. Like Instagram comes on. When we get in this, we get in this, 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 this wheel, this hamster wheel. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But in order to get a different result, we have to do something different. Got to put different, you know? different. And I think, the equation. I think we've been sort of lulled into this 
the pseudo spiritual uh, euphoria that you know everything happens for a reason, and that's bullshit. It's a, it's a bypass. Everything right? everything happens as a result of an action that I made, yeah, or an action that I took. Mm-hmm. That's why shit happens. Mm-hmm. Why did this person come into my life? What were the things that led up to that? Why does my stomach hurt so bad? Mm-hmm. What were the things that led up to that? Mm-hmm. I mean, everything happens as a result of the actions that we've taken. Yeah. Right. And those actions may simply be the thought patterns that we've gotten, that we that we've unconsciously have a lot, or they may be, may be the results of movement patterns that we've been in. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go into any sports PT's office. They will tell you that certain sports have very sports-specific uh, injuries. Yeah. Right. They all and and they usually present in very much the same biomechanical patterns. Right. Very common. Right. It happens with musicians as well. Work yep. with a lot of musicians. That makes sense. String players. Yeah. Have different, very different musculoskeletal complaints than wind players Mm -hmm. upright bass players have different musculoskeletal complaints than guitar players and when you do something over any amount of time and then you do not do anything to undo that it puts a system out of balance and nature is about balance Everything in nature is either in balance or it is returning to balance. Like, look, how long does it take a hurricane may blast through, you know, some coastal city and wreak all this damage completely out of balance. Right. But then very quickly after that, everything starts to return to balance. You've got a rabbit gets chased by a fox, happens to escape. It's neurological system, it's, it's, it's fight or flight system, it's HPA axis gets activated, mm-hmm. gets completely out of balance, but then after it knows it's escaped, within a minute, its heart rate goes back down to normal and it's back down foraging for food. Mm-hmm. Nature is either in balance or it is returning to balance. But that is not what we are, that's not what we're taught. It's push, 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 push. Yep. If it's not working, push harder. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? We are not taught to allow ourselves to be pulled towards something, which is what that voice inside of us will tell us to do. Mm-hmm. If we listen to our body, it will pull us in the direction of, of a solution. It won't push us. It, we get gently sort of dragged to something, right? Yeah. But we are taught to just push, to push towards something, push, push harder. Select an external goal, exactly. Or we decide yeah. it's the one we want because we'll get accolades, or people will think yeah. we're cool, or we'll be loved, or whatever, right? So yep. we decide we're going to win this race, or get this yep. job, or yeah. graduate from this program. Yep. And, and pushing, push. pushing creates imbalance. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it musculoskeletally. Do muscles what do muscles do? Muscles contract, which means they bring joints together. Which so means they, they pull. They pull. Yeah. Right. Muscles pull. Right. Muscles do not push. Mm. 
right? So even in our own body, there is this message. Listen, like follow the pull. Mm. Mm. Muscles pull bones together. They don't push bones apart. That's interesting. And well, to expand on that topic just a little bit, you know, Paul Chuck talks about his primal movement patterns and how we can break sports down into these patterns. The purpose being to sort of help us disseminate which patterns an athlete does well and which ones they do poorly, right? And I have this discussion in my in my fitting quite a bit with clients, and I explain that to them that you know, using those we'll say archetypes of movement is can be really useful to illustrate to people like, what are you doing on a bike? How are your hips moving? How is your spine moving or not moving, mm -hmm. etc. And so I break those down and. and he talks a lot about how, I mean, uh, not to um, bring in a confusing counterpoint to what you were just saying, but all muscles pull because they bring joints closer together, right? Mm -hmm. And then how do we lengthen the joint or how do we extend? So for example, if you do a bicep curl, your bicep mm -hmm. pulls the lower arm towards the upper arm, mm -hmm. right? And then the tricep on the other side of the joint pulls mm -hmm. to extend Damn. the arm and the bicep has to relax. Correct. Right. And, and that's where a lot of the problems come. This is cycling. It's learning how to pedal with high power uh, at a high cadence. Also is having that supple muscle to have the quads and the hamstrings mm -hmm. fire at the right moment, but also relax the right moment. So that the muscles aren't working against each other. And mm -hmm. when you do an extra, that's when you learn an exercise. It's one of the reasons you get so sore when you're learning a new movement for the first time, because your body's clunky. It doesn't understand how to be supple or mm -hmm. smooth. Right. Right. You go do anything, whatever, boxing footwork or run mm -hmm. a trail for the first time, you know, in a long time, you'll get sore because your muscles just don't have the, the action down. Yeah. Right. So, but he talks about how pushing exercises specifically. Uh, so the, the archetypes that he talks about the six primal movement patterns are briefly a squat, a lunge, a hip hinge, a push, a pull mm -hmm. and a twist. And then the final result of all that is considered to be gait. Right. That's sort of the, the ultimate archetype of what humans, what do we do physically? Right. Walk and run. Right. You got to walk to go get water mm -hmm. and walk after that herd of deer, maybe right. running a little bit now and again until they get tired. You got to walk up to go talk to that cute girl. You got to run away from that saber tooth tiger. Right. So, so he talks about the push and the pull, the push being a push exercise, like with your upper body, like a, a push up would be the example, a pull mm -hmm. being a pull up or a mm -hmm. bent over row or something. And he talks about how to emotionally, what do, what do we see angry young men in the gym doing? Bench press. And bench is a push exercise. And that's associated emotionally with a no. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. And then a pull is associated mm -hmm. with a yes, which makes sense. Like, how do you hug someone? You, you pull them in gently towards you. That's a yes. You don't hug someone right. and you say no to them. You want to punch them in the face. <laughs> if it, if Well, when you take the no to... A violent outcome, an extreme right. outcome, right? Yeah, no, I agree. But I mean, if, but if you look at the the mechanics of what's happening with your musculoskeletal system, muscles only they pull. only pull. The only that's can't. all yeah, they do, right? Yes, right. Yeah. So the the construct of a push or a pull mm -hmm. is is sort of it's a it's sort of a man made. Yeah. Uh, it's a man-made construct, right? There because because we're you're saying it's an artificial label. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. I mean, we're bringing something closer to us. You pull a food towards your mouth. Mm-hmm. You push a, a predator away. So it's right. Really, it's but, a, but, a, but if you're looking at what your mus, I'm talking about what your musculoskeletal is doing. Yep. It's, it's all always pulling. pulling. It's all pulling. Right? Yep. That's a, yeah. It's really interesting. And my only, and you know yeah. my and my only point with that is that if you want to, because what's true on one level is true on every level. Mm-hmm. As above, so, so below. Low, right and. How you do one anything is how you do everything, right? Right. It's it, it it's all the it's kind of all the same. Mm-hmm. And if we're looking for a sort of a solution, and we have the wherewithal to start looking inside of ourselves, because our answers are inside of ourselves. Our body is incredibly intelligent. It's a self healing wonder it wants to be healthy it wants to be healthy and it knows how yes to steer towards health mm-hmm. but none of it doesn't happen against resistance it it doesn't happen by pushing right it happens when we get a solution from our body it is something that we are pulled towards mm-hmm. it's not something that we have to push to uh, uh, to achieve That's a really interesting concept. Okay, Space Monkeys, you've reached the end of the first part of my conversation with Ron Kochevar. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion to this point. You've got to come back for next week to hear the remainder. We're going to get into the natural intelligence of the body, the innate intelligence of the human body, and how it actually wants to be healthy and exist in an optimal state of function. I appreciate you listening to this point. As always, if you have questions or comments, hit me on the gram. Thanks. We will be with you next week. Gratitude. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of Cycling in Alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard-fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that The opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. 
Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not, to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.